I love it when Aggie introduces me. <laughs> well, I have to give my disclaimer. I don't do voices. And so I am so sorry. And if you have voice requests over the next couple of weeks, please. Okay, I know we said don't bother Pastor Wayne, but send your voice request to Wayne and he'll double up on the voices over the next couple of weeks. Well, before coronavirus hit, we installed new toilets in our house. Now, our toilets had been 20, they were 22 years old. They had lived a good life. And so it was time for, the, time for us to get new toilets. So Jane and I go to Home Depot, and we find the biggest, baddest toilets that we could possibly find. It said on the box that you could flush a bucket of golf balls in our toilet. So we buy these two toilets, we bring them back home, and now it comes time to install the toilets. I could have watched YouTube videos. I could have called some of you, but water scares me. And there's leaks and point of no return, those types of things. And so I said, you know, I'm going to hire a professional to install my toilets. So I want to introduce you to two words that we're going to talk about today, which is going to be authority and power. And let me use toilets to introduce authority and power. Authority is the legal right to act. And power is the capability or the strength to act. So I call a plumber and I've got to decide, am I going to let this stranger come into my house, rip out my old toilets and put new toilets in? Now, hypothetically, let's say I show up at your door. Don't let me in to fix your toilets, but just hypothetically, I show up, I'm dressed like a plumber, you look and I have tools that look like tools that a plumber would have. I might even have a pickup truck out front that says, George's Plumbing. But you have to make the decision, am I going to let George into my house to fix my toilets? That's authority. Are you going to let me in to actually do it? Let's just say, hypothetically, you let me into your house to actually fix your toilets. Well, then the second question is, can I actually do it? That's what power is. I might look like, the, look like a plumber. I might be able to pull it off. But unless I can actually do what I'm saying that I can do, I am not really the person that you want fixing your toilets. So authority, legal right to act, power, the ability to actually pull it off. Now, here's what I'll tell you. If you find a good plumber, if you find a good electrician, if you find a good painter, what happens is two things. Number one is that's the only person you call. Anytime you've got a plumbing problem, you're going to call that plumber. Anytime you've got an electrical problem, you're going to call that electrician. And here becomes the second thing is that you tell everybody else about your plumber. Oh, you got a problem? Let me give you the name of my plumber because that plumber has the authority and has the power and you're telling other people, hey, this person's really good at fixing things. Since Genesis chapter three, scripture has been telling us that there's going to be somebody who's going to come and fix the mess that we're in. That person's called the Messiah. So since Genesis chapter 3, someday a Messiah is going to come and that person is going to deal with the fallen world and all the mess that we have, are, find ourselves in. And that person is going to make things right. 
Someday the Messiah is going to rid the world of disease and suffering. Someday the Messiah is going to come and deal with all of the injustices that we see in this world. Someday the Messiah is going to come and take Satan and his demons and stick them exactly where they need to be. Someday this Messiah is going to come and is going to free us from the bondage of sin. Someday, someday, this Messiah is going to come and bring salvation in the absolute fullest sense of the word. I had a toilet problem and I needed a plumber to fix my toilets. I can't fix myself. I need a Messiah. And this society, trust me, we can't fix what we need to fix in this society. We collectively, we need a Messiah. Here's your big idea for the morning. If you don't remember anything else for the rest of the time, this is why I want you to remember that Jesus has the authority and Jesus has the power to fix things. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, third uh, book in your New Testament. Luke, the author, he is a physician, but he is also writing this gospel to non-Jews. So you're going to see throughout the book, and you'll even see it in our passage today, is that he doesn't assume that you've ever been to Israel. And so he's going to give you clues of where these different cities are. And he doesn't assume that you've ever been in a Jewish worship service. And so he is going to give some indications that this is how Jews worshiped. In Luke chapter 1 is the genealogy and the background story of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, that's the Christmas story. You know it. This is what you've grown up with, with the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 3 is about John the Baptist as a forerunner of Christ. And in Luke chapter 4 is the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. It starts with the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, and then it brings us to where we're going to be today in the starting in the second part of Luke chapter 4. So Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. There's our word. Remember, our two words today are going to be authority and power. You're going to see those throughout. And news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues and being praised by everybody. What you're going to see in our passage today is that we're going to talk about the region of Galilee, and we're going to talk about two cities. And when Jesus showed up to fix things, how did these two cities respond? Galilee, beautiful. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, Galilee is the place to be. It reminded me very much of Southern California, Uh, lush, green, agriculture, and everything is centered and anchored on this amazing body of water called the Sea of Galilee. This is going to be the home base for Jesus's early earthly ministry. We're going to talk about two cities today. We're going to talk about Nazareth, and we're going to talk about Capernaum. Nazareth is going to be our first city that we're going to talk about. Nazareth is in the hill country between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It is about 15 miles to the Sea of Galilee, and it's about 20 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It sits in kind of a hill country. It sits on a ridge that overlooks the historic Jezreel Valley. Nazareth itself was not that much of anything when Jesus was walking the earth. 
maybe 500 people that lived in the city of Nazareth. It is never mentioned in the Old Testament, but this was Jesus's hometown. He was born in Bethlehem. Well, you know that from the Christmas story, but this is where he grew up. These were his childhood friends. This is where the extended family was. This is a modern day picture of Nazareth. About 20,000 people live in Nazareth today. You see it kind of sits on a hill. You see the valley down back behind it. That's the Jezreel Valley. That's going to come into play in just a little bit. If you go to modern day Nazareth, you will most likely take a tour of what's called the Nazareth Village. And it's a recreation of what Nazareth could have looked like in the first century. And at the end of that tour, you're going to go into this building right here. It doesn't look like much, but this is actually a recreation of a first century synagogue. That was actually our tour guide. That is actually the tour that I was leading. And we're inside this synagogue. This is kind of what it would have felt like to be in the synagogue in the first century. You see where our guide is standing, there's a scroll that's there. This is a picture I took of that scroll. How Jewish worship worked is that you would have the religious leaders who would read the scriptures, but then also people in the audience. The lay people would also have an opportunity to read the scriptures, and that is exactly what we're going to see. So this is Jesus's hometown. It says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you want to know the agenda of the Messiah, this Messiah who we've been waiting for to come and to fix things, that's what you see. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. An anointed ministry to preach good news to the poor, to release the captive, sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let me explain that last phrase. That comes out of the book of Leviticus. The rest of this comes out of two passages in Isaiah. But this comes out of the book of Leviticus, and it's the idea of the year of Jubilee. Old Testament had a, a concept that every 50 years, all debts would be erased and all the slaves would be freed. Now, sadly, we never have a record of the Jewish people actually doing it. They were supposed to, but they never did. And the Jewish people kept saying, someday, 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 a Messiah is going to come and it is going to be a jubilee of jubilees when the Messiah comes. I want to bring a voice of an African-American pastor and theologian to bear in our conversation this morning. Uh, this is a voice that many of you know and many of you have heard. It's Dr. Tony Evans. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans is pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship here in Dallas. He's been the past founding pastor and has been there for 40 years. He's a two-time graduate of our institution of Dallas Theological Seminary. He has his master's degree. He has a doctorate in theology. He sits on our board 
He is also the first African-American pastor ever to write a study Bible. Uh, This is his brand new study Bible. It is fantastic. Um, And here's the cool thing. The translation is the Christian Standard Version. This is the translation Wayne preaches from every single Sunday. Uh, Dr. Evans also came out with a one-volume Bible commentary, and he's the first African-American to ever come out with both a study Bible and a one-volume commentary. Um, I don't give lots of book recommendations. These are good ones to pick up and put in your library. They're really well done. So what does Dr. Evans say about this year of Jubilee in this passage? He says, Jubilee is a symbol of the social and economic liberation of God's people. The key, however, is to understand the year of Jubilee is that it was inaugurated by the day of atonement when the issue of sin was addressed. The spiritual transformation is the foundation for the legitimate social, political, and economic restructuring of society. Jesus' preaching then addresses both the content of the gospel, Jesus' coming death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, and the scope of the gospel, the impact this good news should have on issues of biblical justice, the equitable and impartial application of God's moral law in society. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preaches saves us from hell, but it should also save us from making a kingdom impact on this world through our good works that bring glory to God and benefit to people. Jesus then is offering his people and us a new jubilee. Can you imagine a more timely message? Jew and Gentile, the Messiah is going to come to deal with all of this. And then can you imagine a more timely message for us today? that all of this can be possible. Someday the Messiah is gonna come. Someday the Messiah is gonna come. Someday the Messiah is gonna come. Here's the sermon. It was one sentence. Jesus reads the passage and his sermon was this. Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Today, today Jesus stands up in front of his childhood friends, stands up in front of his extended family. This is his hometown. He says, you've been waiting for the Messiah and I'm here. I am here. And he says it has been fulfilled today. This is very cool. This word fulfilled is found two places in the book of Luke. It is found at the start of Jesus's earthly ministry, and it is found at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Anytime you see a word placed like that, it is a bookend. And the bookends of Jesus's ministry is fulfillment. In Luke 24, the other place where we see this passage, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law of Moses. I am the fulfillment of the prophets. I am the fulfillment of the Psalms. Today, it's fulfilled. Today, the Messiah is here. And today, I am the one you've been waiting for. Now, what happens is that Jesus places the hearer with a choice. Are we really thinking that Jesus is this Messiah? Or is Jesus loony? You can't separate the promise of a Messiah from Jesus. You want the freedom, you want the forgiveness, you want Jubilee to happen. It is tied to the person of Jesus. You cannot separate the two. 
And that was what was placed before the hearers today with this one sentence. So what happens in the message? Well, he preaches the message, and then you're going to see in verses 22 and follow uh, kind of the commentary of what happens next. But let me just summarize it for you. They look at Jesus, and they say, man, that guy, man, he can preach. He is a good preacher, but we don't buy it. Isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus, why don't you do some of the miracles that we've heard you do in some of these other places? And Jesus basically gives them a history lesson. And he talks about two prophets. He talks about Elijah and talks about Elisha. Now, remember, I just told you, Nazareth sits on a ridge that overlooks the Jezreel Valley. This is the region where Elijah and Elisha did their ministry several hundred years earlier in the Old Testament. And Elijah and Elisha were probably the two most powerful prophets. When they came to this region and they preached, the Jews rejected them. And the only people that really responded were a couple of Gentiles. And we get to see a preview of what's going to happen in Jesus' own ministry. His hometown. These are his childhood friends. These are his extended family. And the message of grace is offered to them and they reject it. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to be rejected by the Jewish officials as well. See, when grace is offered and you reject grace, there are dire consequences. It says in the passage that they were so mad, the childhood friends of Jesus, his extended family, the people he grew up with were so mad that they went out of town and they were going to throw Jesus off of this cliff right outside of the city of Nazareth. Grace, a message of grace, and you're so ticked off you want to kill the person who is offering grace? That's exactly what happened. And Jesus walks through the crowd and leaves. So that's Nazareth. That's one city. We're going to continue on. And it's going to say in the passage that Jesus left Nazareth and went down to Capernaum. Now, when we look at maps, we would say, oh, no, Jesus went up to Capernaum. But in Jewish context, down meant you go down in like sea level feet. So Nazareth sits about 1,300 feet above sea level. Again, it sits on a ridge overlooking a valley. Capernaum is 700 feet below sea level. So it's going to talk about Jesus going down to Capernaum. This is a picture of Capernaum. And I I kind of joke, it's kind of like Disneyland. It was really cool to go visit this place. Um, You're going to see this thing that looks like a little spaceship. Um, That is actually a church that they built that sits on top of Peter's house. Capernaum was a bigger city than Nazareth. This is the hometown of Peter. This is the hometown of Andrew. This is where Matthew collected taxes. They had a Roman garrison that was there. You walk through the gates. Again, told you, it's like Disneyland. You get to walk through the gates to go see the hometown of Jesus. This is another shot of that church that sits above Peter's house. You go to the church and the floor is glass. And you actually get to look down into Peter's house. So you're looking one direction, you see Peter's house. You literally turn around and you see this beautiful synagogue 
that is there. Now, this synagogue dates back to the third century. This was not the synagogue that Jesus preached in, but it literally sits on top of the first century synagogue where Jesus taught. Now, remember, I showed you just a picture of the Nazareth synagogue. It was much smaller. There was only 500 people in that town. This is a much larger synagogue, and it's still beautifully preserved. So again, kind of gives you a picture in your head as you read the passage. So then he, Jesus, went down, went down in, in below sea level to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. Remember, our two words are authority and power. We we're going to see those words play throughout. We'll come back to authority in just a second. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out in a loud voice. See, this is where we need a voice. This is where you need Wayne. Wayne, Wayne I told the first service, Wayne does great demonic voices. And I know that sounds terrible to tell your pastor that he has great demonic voices, but he does. He'd make a great voice with this. Cried out in a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here's the irony of this whole thing. When Jesus shows up in his own hometown, they don't recognize him. When Jesus shows up in Capernaum, the one guy in the audience that all of you would have thought would be the last person who would recognize Jesus knew immediately who Jesus was. So let's talk about demon possession for a second, because that's like, whoa, what's going on here with demon possession? Uh, demons are mentioned 23 times in the book of Luke. And every time Luke is talking about demons, he is talking about real, personal, fallen spiritual beings who are wholly given to wickedness. In Scripture, there's going to be two times when you're going to see widespread demonic influence. The first time is when Jesus walked the earth during the gospel times. That's when you're going to see this. And then you're going to see it in the tribulation right before Jesus comes back again when you're going to see widespread demonic activity. Why? Because they know Jesus is coming back. In every case of demon possession in the gospels, we're talking about actual indwelling of demons who controlled the bodies of their victims and even caused self-destruction. But let me give five clarifications. I want to be very clear with this. Number one, there is no example in the New Testament where a demon ever possessed a true believer in Jesus Christ. Second thing is that there's no place in the New Testament where a believer in Jesus is ever warned about being possessed by a demon. Number three is that we never see anyone in the New Testament rebuke, bind, or cast out a demon in a true believer in Jesus Christ. Number four is that Jesus and the apostles, they are the only ones in the New Testament who cast out demons. And in every single instance, it's always an unbeliever who they are casting the demon out of. And number five Every single time when you see Jesus casting out a demon, it is instantaneous. There's no debate. There's no magic formula. There's no deep struggle. Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, get out of here. And the demon leaves every single time. 
This demon recognized the absolute authority and power of who Jesus was. I want you to notice, go back to the passage. He says, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? See the plural that's there? This demon and every other demon recognizes the authority and power of Jesus. And also this demon and every other demon knows where their true fate lies. See, I've read the end of the book. And I know that Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophets and all the demons are destined for the lake of fire. And what happens is Jesus shows up and this demon is scared to death because he knows that the one who has true authority and the one that has true power is here and he is ready to do business. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent, come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Be silent. Why is Jesus telling this demon to be silent? Well, there's two reasons why. Number one, let's just be real truthful. The place is freaking out right now. Imagine we're here in service and all of a sudden a demon starts speaking in service. Whoa, what's going on here? Jesus, who has righteous authority and righteous power, takes control of the room. Be quiet. But here's the second reason. Is that, remember, since Genesis chapter 3, a Messiah is going to come someday. A Messiah is going to come someday. A Messiah is going to come someday. And there have been a lot of so-called Messiahs, but they were always political leaders and always military leaders. And Jesus says, I'm not about politics and military conquest. I'm about something even bigger than that. I've got much bigger fish to fry because I am talking at a cosmic level. I'm not merely talking politics. I'm not merely talking military takeover. I am a Messiah that's going to set right the foundations of the world. So be silent and come out of him. I want you to notice it says throwing him down before them. The demon came out without hurting him at all. Luke is always concerned. Luke is a physician and he's always concerned in every story of, hey, is the person all right? And Luke says, yeah, the guy was okay. But notice that the demon throws this guy down to the ground. Here's my one minute rabbit trail. Satan wants to hurt you. Satan's going to tell you that he has his be- your best interest at heart. Satan could give a rip about you. He just wants to use you. And as soon as he is done using you, he will always cast you aside. Satan wants to hurt you. And Satan wants to hurt those you love. And he will use you to hurt other people. But when he's done with you, he will always cast you aside. So verse 36 and 37, it says amazement came over them all. And they were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power. There's our two words again. And they come out and news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. They were amazed 
They'd never seen anything like this. And there was authority and power. Remember our original definition? Authority is the legal right to act and, and power is the capability or the strength to act. Jesus has the authority. Not borrowed authority, but he has actual real authority. Why is that? It's because he is the son of God. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. And if Jesus comes and says it is his, he will come and claim it. So what happens that day? He is in Capernaum. He preaches this message. This demon pops up and Jesus says, today you're mine. Get out of him. Because scripture is being fulfilled today. And there's power because it actually happens. It's not Jesus talking a good game. Jesus says, you're mine, and actually it happens. It's not borrowed power, but it's actual legitimate power because he is the son of God. Authority and power. We want a Messiah who has authority, and we want a Messiah who has power. What we're going to see throughout this series, we're going to be looking at the miracles of Jesus. We're going to look at five cities and we're going to look at five miracles. And in each one of these, you're going to see the agenda of the Messiah. So again, if Jesus really can heal the sick, if Jesus really can restore the sight of the blind, if Jesus really can make the mute speak, if Jesus really can free captives and those who are oppressed, if Jesus truly can raise the dead, if the message of Easter is true and that Jesus can actually take Satan's best shot, die, be buried, and three days later be raised from the grave, if Jesus can do all of that, trust me, Jesus can take care of your sin problem. Trust me, Jesus can release you from the grip of Satan. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, this is God the Father, God the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So let's talk about application. It's a tale of two cities. Nazareth. What happens in Nazareth? The long-awaited Messiah comes. This is His childhood friends. This is His extended family. And they don't buy it. And they reject the gospel of grace. They reject the chance to be a part of the mission of Jesus. So the application we learn from Nazareth is, join the mission and change the world. Jesus invites you, just like he invited the people who were in Nazareth that day to, I'm here to bring about real legitimate change. Please come and change the world with me. Because I have authority and I have power. Now, with those two words in your head of authority and power, let's look at the Great Commission. So at the end of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 28, Jesus came near and said to them, to the disciples, all authority, same word, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Luke in the book of Acts gives just a little bit different version of the same commissioning of what happens at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
And Jesus says this, but you will receive power. There's our word again, authority and power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So see, the application of Nazareth is this, that Jesus has the authority and guess what? Jesus has given you the power. Through the Holy Spirit living within you, you have the power that Jesus had to go and change the world. The application for Capernaum is just a little slightly different. So in Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth shows up in Nazareth and his family and friends reject him. Jesus shows up in Capernaum and the one person who you thought wouldn't be paying attention absolutely is paying attention. And the demon leaves. Remember I said earlier in my one minute rabbit trail though, is that Satan does not have your best interest at heart. See, this demon was saying he was the one that had the authority and he was the one that had the power on this individual. And so my application for you with Capernaum is don't believe Satan's lie. See, Satan wants you to believe that he has your best interest at heart. But trust me, Satan does not have your best interest at heart. He wants to keep you captive in your addictions. He wants to keep you a prisoner in your anger. He wants to keep you blind to biblical truth. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your friends. He wants to destroy everything you hold precious in your life. Satan wants to puff you up with pride. Satan wants you to become envious of others. And Satan wants you to be consumed with greed. And trust me, Satan does not want you to join in the mission of Jesus. Satan's a liar. Jesus tells us that in John 8, 44. See, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. When we were singing right before the message, we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Oh, such a great hymn. Martin Luther, the hymn of the Reformation. Uh, that hymn was written in the 1520s during a pandemic in Europe. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? And what he does, he takes Psalm 46 and he inserts Christ as the fulfillment of Psalm 46. But then also in that great hymn, he also names our foe. So you have it in your worship bulletin. I want you to look again at the, third, the end of the third stanza. The end of the third stanza says this, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. I've always wondered, what's that one little word? If I knew just the formula of that one little word, gosh, that would make life a whole lot easier. Well, here's the cool thing. Martin Luther actually tells us what that one little word is. In a letter, so this, the song was written in, the, in 1520s. A letter written in 1541, Martin Luther writes about the attacks that he was under. And I want to read that portion of that letter to you. He says, for all such books written against me, this is Martin Luther talking, even if there were as many as thousands of them written every day and night, 
they're very easily refuted by the single word, devil, you lie. Just as I sing so proudly and boldly in those words of my hymn, one little word shall fell them. What's the one little word? Liar. Satan, you're a liar. I don't believe anything that you tell me. Satan wants you to believe that he has the authority and he has the power. He doesn't have the authority. He doesn't have the power. Jesus has the authority and Jesus has the power. Don't miss the mission. Jesus wants you to join the mission. And don't believe the lies. Satan does not have your best interest at heart. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, may we not miss what you are doing in our midst. We have nothing to fear because you, Jesus, have the authority and you have the power. You have the authority and power to transform our lives, the authority and power to transform society. May we not miss the mission that you have for us to bring good news to others. Also, may we not believe the lies of Satan. Satan has no authority or power in our lives. Satan has no authority or power in this place. Jesus, may your kingdom come. Jesus, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in the authority of your name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.